Hello, welcome to the Sports Hub this week on Fresh Air with me, Peter Johnson, joined as usual by Alfie Steiner. We've had a big week of European and Premier League football action and we do it all again over the next seven days. So it'll be a big preview of the previous of the coming seven days, big review of the week we've just had. We've uh, There's only one place we can start really with the North London derby. Uh, obviously, Alfie's so personally invested in that. Um, and then we'll chat a bit later about as well the announcement today that Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury have agreed a deal for two fights later this year. So we'll have a quick word about that later on. Uh, but as I said, we've got to start really at the Emirates as uh, one of us was incredibly invested in that match on Sunday evening. Arsenal came out 2-1 winners. Very much deserved victory, it has to be said, making it 10 Premier League home games unbeaten against Spurs. I mean, over to you, Alfie. Floor's yours. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what a relief. I was, uh, yeah, thrilled that we managed to get the three points and a win. As I was saying last week, you know, Arteta hadn't beaten Spurs yet. This was his third attempt. I couldn't bear the idea of Mourinho beating us three times in a row with Spurs. And I wasn't that confident going into it. I It was sort of more of a hope of, uh, a desperate hope that I can't bear the pain of losing. And fortunately, Spurs did a Spurs and turned <laughs> up in a quintessential sort of Mourinho, um, back-footed, sit-deep kind of fashion. Obviously, they got slightly unfortunate with Son coming off injured. Gareth Bale didn't show up. And yeah, we we played really well for about 75 minutes. The last 15 minutes, I really was questioning why this team are the way they are because it was a horrific viewing, seeing us so incredibly nervous and almost begging to to lose, drop the three points. But we came through in the end and really important, you know, for Arteta to get his first win and... The fact that we did it without Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang as well, who was consigned to the bench, was, I guess, a big, big result as well. Because if we hadn't have won, then, you know, what does that suggest about the manager's decision-making and, and the rest of it? So, yeah, I was, I'm, I'm thrilled that we, we beat them. We deserved it in the end. And it's been a, having drawn to Burnley, it's, you know, uh, last weekend, it's been a decent week uh, in the Europa League. And against Spurs and it's good to see that you know these good performances are finally sort of reaping some rewards um, Sorry you spoke there about Arteta obviously not selecting Aubameyang now I believe that was he did he breach the pre-match protocol or something um, which I think um, put him like Arteta kind of forced his hand really just for his own kind of um, you know as manager he's kind of he had to stamp his authority I'm not entirely sure what, what went on there yeah, it was it was that he turned up late. I'm not sure how late for you know the pre-match sort of squad meeting. He just for whatever reason I think you know um, turned up late. And apparently it's not been the first time that he's turned up late to team meetings. There's been a few minor disciplinary issues. Uh, as I was reading today, you know he, he'd missed a COVID test after a European game. He got a tattoo recently, which was sort of breaching breaching rules. And I think Arteta probably felt that he, this was a good opportunity maybe to really stamp his authority on, on proceedings. Look, I don't like it. I think it is harsh, but just don't be late or don't be late on a consistent basis. I think he was well within his rights to do it. I like the fact that, you know, there's no one in this squad bigger than Aubameyang. And if you're not going to abide by the rules that are sort of consistent for everyone, then you will be, you know, disciplined, and I think it's, I mean, we're fortunate we won because maybe the conversation would be slightly different if not. But Aubameyang really did look uh, royally uh, royally upset yesterday, you could say, on his face pre-game, after the game. He sort of left the stadium straight away, didn't, didn't do the warm down. So I'm hoping that there's nothing there. I think he just needs to learn from his mistake. You know, he's captain as well. He's been warned, clearly keeps happening. So I don't really think that there's any um I don't think there's too much to to talk about with it I think it was just quite shocking I mean I was pretty shocked when I saw it but well yeah I'm sure it's kind of first name on the team sheet and then for the biggest game of the season he's not there but um if we turn to the turn to the, the, the game itself now I mean it started with Arsenal very much on the front foot really it was a class goal from Lamella to be fair which albeit was very much against the run of play 
Um, Smithrow and Cedric hit the hit the woodwork, and then Odegaard obviously bagging his um, his second goal of the week after the Olympiacos match. But it's yeah, it's fair to say that it was it was a game that Arsenal, in fairness, probably never really deserved to be behind in. Yeah, I mean, I was I was concerned. Sort of, it was getting closer and closer to half time, and we were on top. But I just knew that it would take one moment or one mistake to let Spurs capitalise. And to be fair, we didn't necessarily make a mistake. It was a moment of individual brilliance and uh, sort of creativity from Lamella. And, you know, that was their only shot on target or on goal, I think, in the whole entire half. So, yeah, we were unfortunate to go behind. And at that point, I was really worrying that this would suit the Spurs game plan to perfection. But we kept going. We didn't let that get us down. And like you say, Odegaard equalised... Slightly fortunate with the deflection, but he he deserved his goal. He was excellent on the day, followed it up from the goal in midweek against Olympiacos as well. So, yeah, I, I was really relieved to go into halftime at 1-1 uh, because otherwise I would have, I would have, wouldn't have liked the idea of Mourinho sort of giving a team talk at halftime knowing that they were 1-0 up. Having said that, Spurs don't tend to fare very well when they go ahead in North London derbies albeit I don't think Arsenal do either. There always seems to be a, a sort of, a, yeah, a massive possibility of things drastically turning over. So Yeah, well, I was surprised actually when I saw that Arsenal are unbeaten in, in 10 at home against Spurs. I mean, I thought it was a lot more even than that over the last few years, but um, clearly I, not. In, in, in home games, did you say? In home games, yeah, over the last 10 years, yeah. I hadn't realised it was quite that kind of one-sided. Yeah, yeah. We've lost two in our last... Uh, I think it's 35 home home games against Spurs. So it is, you know, it's it's something to, it's a good record to have. Yeah, now it, if we then do to turn our attention to, to Spurs then, um, obviously it was a classic Mourinho performance really, just kind of the kind of negativity you would generally expect. Lamella scored the first shot and then after that, they only really seemed to start to apply any pressure once they were a goal down and a man down. Um, mm. Obviously, the last few seconds we saw they had a uh, hit the post and a shot cleared off the line, which I'm sure was uh, quite terrifying to watch. Um, but do you just think that the well, Mourinho's approach for the first what 75 minutes, or whatever, clearly was stifling their creativity? Yeah, I mean, you can't really see it any other way. I, I, I you know, I spoke to a, a Spurs fan actually before the game, and. We were talking about how we anticipated both Mourinho and Arteta setting up because the previous two games between Arsenal and Spurs, obviously Spurs have come out on top, but they've done the same thing. They've sat in, uh, hit us on the counter, done the minimum because we're not, we've not been good enough to to hurt them. And I did think, I mean, I sort of expected Tottenham to to really get at us, and they didn't. They they sat deep. They didn't press. And I knew that, you know, we've, we've been a better attacking team of late. So this was sort of, yeah, I guess I was pleasantly surprised. But if I was a Spurs fan, I'd be really disappointed that, that Spurs didn't try and do something different and try and get at us because they, they sort of had the players in the starting eleven to do so. But it just looked like that's Mourinho's sort of go-to when the stakes are high and maybe he underestimated us maybe he overestimated our capacity to shoot ourselves in the foot i mean <laughs> maybe not but we didn't do it on the day so yeah i mean i was very happy because you know spurs lost mourinho lost i mean it's perfect because those are two of the things in football i i have the most <laughs> negative feelings towards but spurs fans must be pulling their hair out because you know on paper that front four and their recent performances and all the rest of it, you know, they've got the sort of tools to, to, to be a really effective force, but they just are stifled by their approach, like you say. Yeah, I mean, Lamella was just the, the fifth substitute in Premier League history to score and be sent off in the same game. Um, now, just for my own amusement, I found that two of the previous four were from my hometown, Bolton Wanderers. Um, I mean, that's <laughs> an absolutely relevant stat. Um, I mean, Mourinho complained about the red, as you would expect him to. Um, but I think if being completely objective, I think, as you say, with the uh, the players that Spurs have, that should never really be an excuse, should it? No. And, yeah, it, look, they, they for some reason or other, they came to life uh, in the last 15 minutes after Lamella had deservedly been sent off. I mean, there was all sorts of discussion after match of the day two last night because Jermaine Genus was uh, 
very, very uh, salty, perhaps, about losing <laughs> the game and having Lamella sent off. But I don't think you can argue with the red card. But again, it, they sort of, you know, they just started playing football again. And, and that was also compounded by, you know, there was a period where Arsenal just gave the ball away about five times in a row around the 75th minute mark. And then the nerves were just so intense. You could see that no players ha- wanted to, or had the had the ability to sort of see the game out calmly. But yeah, there, I don't think there should be any excuses for, for Spurs and Mourinho. I don't think there are. When you also compare... I was just thinking today, obviously Arsenal were playing quite well, but you, you you look at that front four that we turned out with yesterday. I mean, Lacazette, obviously quite experienced, but he's our second choice striker at, at this moment in time. And then you've got Saka, Smith-Rowe and Erdegaard, who, you know, the most senior of those is Erdegaard, who's 22. Spurs' front four, you've got Gareth Bale, Harry Kane, Heung-Min Son and Lucas Moura, all sort of heavily experienced one things capable of scoring goals um, and they were completely anonymous for the most part of the game and that would be really frustrating for Spurs if I was a Spurs fan to see the sort of contrast in what was on the pitch and sort of on paper how that didn't come to sort of any effect on the day so yeah like you say no excuses I don't think for Spurs but that's just what they're like you know <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that I also think it's it's, uh, we'll just move back on to talk about Arsenal in a second um, before we move on completely. Uh, but mm. I do think, you know, kind of Mourinho, kind of the stature is one of the best managers in world football, that sort of thing. And we've kind of got like these young, uh, budding new managers coming through, the likes of Arteta, and they just put him to shame, quite honestly. And it's games like this where you do, where maybe if, if you are if you are kind of of the belief that Mourinho's tactics are kind of outdated, then... It's maybe games like this that would that would show you that it's kind of a new generation of managers coming through who just, mm. you know, completely put him to shame, really. Well, it's, it's it's difficult because you know a lot of the time, like you say, he's one of the most experienced managers out there. And earlier in the season, he was playing this way, and Spurs weren't necessarily or fans weren't too happy about it. Players maybe not either, but they were getting the results. Um, so it's, I think it's picking your moments, and I think. You know, when Arsenal tried to play in the previous North London derbies and got outdone by Spurs countering and this sort of outdated Mourinho approach, then you sort of say, well, why why doesn't Arteta sort of being more like Mourinho? But on this occasion, he sort of stuck to his guns and it and it paid off. So I think, yeah, it's you've got to be more flexible in terms of your approach. And I think Mourinho... I mean, he didn't, you can never tell with him because I don't know if you saw his post-match comments and, you know, always entertaining after a loss and VAR and penalty decisions and all the rest of it. But he he seems to suggest that the performance was was terrible in the first half, but it's really difficult to separate that from, well, surely he asked his players to do that. Well, um, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's always on the, it always seems to be on the players and it didn't look as if they'd been briefed to, you know, come out there, all guns blazing, pressing really high. So something doesn't quite add up there, but yeah, as you say, sort of maybe slightly outdated Mourinho. So we'll just finish, like I said, with a, on a positive note with, with Arsenal. Um, results generally, obviously, you beat Spurs are obviously rather close in the table or a, a lot close from the table now, having, having beaten them. And when you look at the teams kind of in and around you, your West Ham's, Everton's, Tottenham's, Aston Villa's even, they've mustered just one point between them so far this weekend. Um, so it's been a, a great week in terms of closing the gap to kind of, you know, the sixth, seventh place kind of thing. Um, do you think this could be the start of a, I mean, we, you can say this after every single victory, but <laughs> against such a big rival, this might be the start of just hauling, you know, good points haul towards the end of the season? Yeah, I mean, it definitely should be. Let, let's see, because like you say, this was the first of three games in a row when we're playing teams, you know, directly above us. We've got uh, West Ham next and then we've got Liverpool the game after so if we're going to move up the table these games are, are massively important and yeah I really hope this is sort of we've gone through some really tough moments um, over the last couple of weeks and managed to come through you know I think of the Europa League and the Spurs game as well those results could have easily gone very differently but we managed we held on and so you'd like to think that maybe sort of these mistakes and and lack of um, game management 
are being learnt and we can then push on for the rest of this season. It, it is frustrating because you think, well, you know, we're sort of four points off Spurs or whatever and we're still rooted in 10th, but, you know, we dropped points against Burnley. We've dropped so many points when we've been playing well of late. So you just like to think that, well, hopefully we don't drop any more points where we shouldn't uh, because that's why we are where we are. Um, but we've been playing better and it's great to see, like you say, sort of, um, yeah, that that being translated into getting good results. So long may it continue.
Right, so if we turn our attention now to what was probably uh, the biggest off-field talking point of the week, which was Sheffield United um, and Chris Wilder parting ways. After five years together, Chris Wilder took them from League One up to the Premier League, took them to a record ninth place finish in the Premier League and then parted ways after what's been inevitable for quite some time. They were going to get relegated and they finally just decided enough was enough. Um, Now, in... 227 matches under Chris Wilder. Sheffield United conceded five goals on one occasion and never lost by more than a three-goal margin. Now, both of those records were put to the sword in the first game post-Chris Wilder, which suggests really that, I don't know, they didn't... It just, I think, it underlines to me that it was just a completely baffling decision and that he's, he's been getting much better out of his players than he really should have been doing for quite some time. Yeah, 100%. I, I think... Especially once he once he brought Sheffield United up, and we saw what an impressive season they had last year, we knew that these that group of players were sort of not overperforming, but he was getting something out of them that perhaps you don't really anticipate, and not really anyone else could probably um, get that sort of level of performance out of. And that's probably because they came up the leagues um, together, and. I mean, if I'm honest, I haven't. I, knew, I know that they've parted ways, and I, I think they've been quite careful in the wording of it. I don't think it's been anything like he's been sacked or. Yeah, I don't believe so. He's um, so it must have been. I don't know. Maybe it's it's an end of a cycle. I think Sheffield United have probably res- resigned to going down, of course, and maybe Chris Wilder and the club sort of came together and thought, well, for the benefit of the club, you know, we've sort of come up the leagues with this same team and we've done well in the Premier League, but now it's really time to sort of make a change. And so they they must have just agreed that it was the right thing to do. But like you say, it sort of is a bit baffling because I don't think he was doing anything wrong necessarily. I think Sheffield United have just had a torrid time in the league this year. I think just kind of from reading kind of the limited, the limited material that's kind of been put out to the public about this decision... We've seen Chris Wilder speaking a few weeks ago about how when they go down, he's all, he already knows a lot of the players, so he kind of wants to get rid of And he's been quite vocal and quite critical. And he said mm-hmm. like in his mind, he, he kind of knew a lot of the changes he wanted to make in the squad this summer when they kind of inevitably went down. And I, what I, the impression I got was that kind of the fallout was through the fact that he was already planning for the championship, which mm-hmm. is a logical kind of person would be doing at the stage. And the board wasn't quite backing him on that, and was like, "We're still in the Premier League. We're going to, we're going to keep biting." Mm. Um, kind of, you know, the kind of bonsai, kind of devastate die approach. Um, so I think that was kind of where the the, the disagreement was. But he, you know, he's as good as anyone I would have thought in bringing them straight back up. So even in the long term, I'm not entirely sure that it's. Yeah, I, I, I do really agree with you, and especially at the moment, you know, they've just. I think the assistant or someone stepped in as an interim. So, like you, I sort of agree. From an outsider's perspective, it seems that they would have been better off longer term to keep, you know, the stability and the the sort of know-how that Chris Wilder has. But, you know, who knows what's, as you say, gone on in, internally. I mean, let's just look at the, the game itself now then. Um, it was, well, it was, you know, it was what you'd expect, really. They just looked completely devoid of confidence or any kind of character probably at the end of what's been I think because the players kind of when you we saw it maybe with Pochettino at Spurs to a certain extent where the players do kind of form a bond with the manager and it is actually rather difficult from you know kind of like human beings kind of just mm. as a human being to see to see someone go um, mm. now as for Leicester obviously they just could they just play the team that was put in front of them Ian actually got a hat-trick they came away 5-0 winners um, and they're still scrapping away with Man United for second place, if we can kind of make this into a more positive discussion. Um, mm-hmm. They're not showing the signs of last season that they might be starting to fade away. And they do kind of look like, you know, they're in the top four for, for, you know, for the long haul now. They don't look like they're likely to go anywhere. Yeah, it's a weird one because I, I you know, obviously a lesser team that I think pe- a lot of people quite like and they're entertaining and they've got, popular players there so you know I sort of keep up to date with with what's going on in their form and they are quite easy to sort of forget about because you sort of assume that they you know Arsenal beat them you know a couple of weeks ago 3-1 they lost Barnes and Madison to injury 
they lost a few games, they draw, like dropped some points, and I just assumed that they were probably, you know, slowly but surely um, sliding down the table like they tend to do at this stage of the season. But like you say, they have put some wins together uh, of late in games that they're expected to win, but ordinarily might not have. And yeah, it looks like when everyone else maybe is, is dropping points and being slightly less consistent, Leicester are doing enough to sort of stay in and around those, those top places, um, which I think, you know, even if you're a Man United fan from last year, I think they are, they probably deserve a top four finish on the basis of their performance in the league over the last, you know, three years, for example. Yeah, I absolutely. I would agree with that. I think also it's quite a telling sign. I think Vardy before yesterday scored, yesterday, didn't he, I think, but before yesterday, I think he scored once since Christmas. Um, so it just goes to show that kind of they're able to do it without Vardy as well now, which he perhaps wouldn't have expected in, in years gone by. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's mightily impressive because, as you say, Vardy's been in and out with injury. He's still, you know, I think he got a couple of assists yesterday and sort of basically scored, but it was an own goal in the end. And they're doing it without their two key attacking players, Madison and Barnes, who have been brilliant this year. James Justin injured. They've had so many injuries to contend with. So, you know, credit to Leicester for always finding a way. And you've got to credit Brendan Rodgers for that as well. So let's just move on. We'll have one one more little topic of discussion from, from last week's Premier League and then we'll start looking forward again. Um, so there were some big results down the bottom of the table. Burnley beat Everton uh, to put seven points between them and the relegation zone, while Brighton beat Southampton. Uh, to move them back above Fulham and into 17. We've also got two games in hand on Fulham. Um, now to you, that means that Southampton, I mean, we know that I kind of waxed lyrical about them earlier this season. They have now lost 10 out of 12. Um, they are cr- crawling ever closer towards relegation zone. Does it still look to you like one of Newcastle, Brighton and Fulham's go down? Or do you think there may be more teams becoming embroiled in that? Well, my, my sort of instinct is to say, oh, well, Fulham will still go down. But I think that instinct is probably based upon just what, well, because the other teams are sort of established Premier League size. But when I actually look at their form, Fulham have been playing a lot better of late. Yeah, they, they lost to Man City um, this week. They've lost a few games of late. They don't score many goals. But, you know, Newcastle are sort of, as they tend to do every season or most seasons, tend to coast to sort of like, mid-tableness or just escape relegation without really doing too much. Brighton, I think, are playing some really good football, but struggling to find the back of the net. Uh, I think their underlying statistics are sort of ridiculous in terms of what they should be getting points-wise and what they are getting. And yeah, like you say, Southampton are sort of sliding down in a terrible vein of form. Um, I don't know. I mean, I would still probably put my money on Fulham going down because I feel like these teams will have enough and maybe they have the players that Fulham don't have. Equally, if Fulham keep playing the way they are, then these sites t- should be seriously worried. Um, what do you think? I feel personally that Fulham are kind of embracing it. Like nobody expects them still. I mean, I remember at the start of the season, they got off to an even worse start in the likes of Sheffield United and West Brom. And, ever, and I think that their entire back four has changed since the start of the season when everyone just completely wrote them off. Um, and I think they are kind of playing with that that underdog mentality, which is a lot more positive, I think, really, than the... Well, Southampton are clearly devoid of confidence, aren't they? Just absolutely shot to pieces. Mm. And the likes of Newcastle and Brighton, just, they just look scared to play football, really. I mean, we've seen Newcastle have ground, they ground out a nil-nil draw against West Brom, for example, didn't they? Um, Brighton, as you say... It just look uninspiring, really, certainly in terms of the recent form. So I think Fulham have, I don't know, I just think they've got a much more positive outlook to the way they're going about playing football. Where the other yeah. teams may be playing for draws, I think Fulham are, you know, yeah. just taking yeah. advantage a bit more. Well, it's interesting, you sort of, you can compare all of them. I think Southampton are in, incapable of not losing at the moment. Mm. Brighton are capable of winning, but don't do it nearly enough and can't find the back of the net. Newcastle play for draws and it's very rare that they, you know, especially without Callum Wilson, they've got nothing going forward and are reliant upon, you know, late equalisers like they got against Aston Villa. You know, there's Newcastle Brighton, I think, uh, next weekend. So that will be a big one in terms of the relegation battle. But yeah, and then Fulham who sort of just go for it and will lose some games, but will be rewarded in other cases. So they're all quite different teams and different points of like what they're 
able to to do game by game but I guess it's it's always fun well for for the neutral or people who aren't affected by it to see a relegation scrap I think everyone's if you if you're if you are a neutral I mean I can't speak for everyone but I think you're generally more likely to to back the team who's actually going to go and go out and play football and you know mm. doesn't matter if we get beat by six we'll you know we'll, we'll we need wins at this stage so we're going to just go for it I think that's a lot more appealing from yeah. footballing perspective than watch Newcastle try and play for a nil-nil 38 times a year. To be fair, like my my mate said to me yesterday when I was we were discussing sort of who we think might go down and I said Fulham and he sort of made a really good point. He said, I mean, I quite like Newcastle. Obviously, they're a historically big club and they've got all sorts of issues at, you know, ownership and board level and all of that sort of stuff. But I think for far too long now they've been sort of coasting and mm, getting yeah. away with it and not doing enough. And maybe as heartbreaking as it would be for Newcastle and United fans, maybe they need that sort of, you know, regeneration sort of when they went down um, with Rafa Benitez when he came in and they came straight back up, sort of finished 10th the season after. I mean, it, the buck probably stops with with Mike Ashley being able to sell the club but until then they're just going to be you know where they are so yeah i'm it's, it's fun to back the the dark horse or the or the clubs who are really trying um like fulham all right i think that was a fairly comprehensive uh discussion of kind of the ifs buts and maybes of like the relegation battle um so we'll just have a quick break now and then we'll uh, we'll come back and we'll have a look at the fa cup which is next weekend and the european fixtures from last week and the weekend as well Yeah. 
So we'll move on to talk about the European competition just now. Um, just have a quick run through last week's European matches in the Champions League and the Europa League. There were some absolute barnstorming matches, to be fair. We saw uh, Dortmund and Sevilla played out an absolute cracker, finished 5 4 in aggregate. Uh, it was the Erling Haaland show, really, as Brush Dortmund went through. Uh, Juventus against Porto. Porto won, lost, and drew all in the same match. Try explaining that to a non football fan. I went through on away goals. Uh, Liverpool. Um, the same as the first leg, 2-0 victors over Leipzig, gave them a 4-0 aggregate victory. And despite Messi's best attempts, uh, he could only salvage a draw on the night for Barcelona as PSG went through 5-2 winners. Now, they were all in their own right. Um, you know, entertaining ties, it's fair to say. I don't know which one of which one of them caught your eye really last week that you were you were glued to. Well, I mean, interestingly, so it was uh, I was I was actually busy on the Wednesday night, which was the night that I felt was what I wanted to watch more. You know, you had Liverpool, Leipzig and PSG Barcelona, which I watched bits of. Um, but Tuesday night ended up being really quite entertaining for the neutral. And, you know, uh, was it was it Juventus and Porto that went into extra time? Yeah, two um, goals in the last four minutes, wasn't it? Which was crazy. And, you know, there was late drama in the Dortmund-Sevilla games. So those four teams were really going for it. That caught my eye. You know, Liverpool doing the job, I think, good on them let's see if they can they can follow it up in the Premier League and apparently the Barcelona the first half of Barcelona PSG Barcelona had their finishing been better had Messi scored that penalty which he missed um had they built upon he also scored a screamer uh, I don't mm. know if you saw the goal but yeah. you know they they could have easily have had a couple three goals in the first half and that would have made it a very different game so I think you know the two um less talked about ties actually were the most entertaining in that sense because yeah they they really went for it and it was good to see Porto as well completely deserved to go through against a lacklustre Juventus side um yeah absolutely I mean I think that most people will probably hesitate to guess that Man City if and when they get through will get drawn against Porto in the next round as opposed to likes of PSG or you know whoever um, so you can see that coming a mile off. Won't surprise me at all. Uh, but stop be, just to stop being so cynical. Um, we also had our eyes on Thursday with the mighty Europa League. Arsenal in their annual fixture against Olympiacos came out three-one victors this time. Um, reasonably comfortable, I believe. Odegaard scored an absolute worldie. Um, I mean, you, you're pulling a face, but I mean, a two-goal. Central League going in second leg is nothing to be sniffed at. No, no, not at all. If you look at the result, then absolutely not. But we gave them a goal in the most classic Arsenal fashion. I mean, at that point, I really started thinking, we can't do this anymore. You know, Leno played Sabayos into trouble and they had an open goal. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a classic Arsenal state that we've seen over the last few weeks. And... You know, we, we scored a few screamers. Um, but yeah, we, we deserve to win, but it was it was a mixed bag of emotions, as is you know, as is the case watching Arsenal these days. But um, yeah, like you say, going into the second leg, that's a nice little bit of leverage to have, which I suppose United can't really say they have at the moment. No, I mean uh, AC Milan is you know similar to United, really. Um, kind of, they're a big name. Um, kind of not been anywhere near the, the peak of their powers the last few years, but are actually kind of in a decent vein of form at the moment. Um, so going um, going to you know the San Siro, they've got an away goal. We don't have any kind of goal advantage heading into that match. It's a you know, it's a very it's going to be a very tense affair, I think. That second leg. Um, mm. I think United will still be the favourites. Just think player for player, particularly without Ibrahimovic for Milan. I think United have got a, a stronger squad. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's just classic Man United in Europe under all equal and Solskjaer. They never make it easy for themselves, do they? And they win some, they lose some. Um, so, you know, being just being diplomatic about it, it's definitely one that can go either way, I think. Mm, I, have a, I have a sneaky feeling, and I don't know whether it's because I'm surrounded by Manchester United fans and it would be too good to be true, but I have a sneaky feeling that Arsenal are going are gonna to meet Manchester United at some point. I'd like it to be the final, but I just have a feeling that we, we might... Meet in one of the one of the preceding knockout rounds. So let's see how that prediction goes. That would be, uh, yeah. I've got a feeling AC Milan might have something to say about that. Yeah, but there's yes. provided the English teams get through. There's some, you know, there's some very exciting matchups potentially. I mean, Rangers still in there knocking about. They uh, 
fought for. I think they got a one-all draw at the end of the first leg. Um, so yeah. there's some. There's still some. I mean, half of the teams. If all the British teams get through, then five of the last eight of the British teams. So two mm. of them are in, invariably going to play against each other. Um, so there's some incredibly exciting matchups potentially there. Now, if we go back to kind of the big time competition, we have got two English sides in the Champions League next week. We've got Man City have a, a home tie against Munching Gladbach on Tuesday. They're currently teaming up an aggregate. I'm not sure there's an awful lot to say about that one, really. I think it's kind of a, a foregone conclusion. Um, perhaps one that's slightly more in, uh, hanging in the balance is Chelsea um, host Atletico Madrid, holding on to a, a 1-0 aggregate lead. Um, now, that is one that could potentially... Um, I don't know, the two sides kind of based on very solid defence at the moment. So you wouldn't expect a high-scoring game, really. But that's one that Chelsea fans may be slightly concerned about. Yeah, but at the same time, I think, um, you know, Chelsea don't concede goals really at the moment. And I think they've got plenty of experienced players, weirdly enough. It seems weird because Chelsea, you sort of don't associate with, you know, European experience as of late because they've been in and around the Europa League sometimes and with Lampard. But actually, they've got some players who, you know, have been around for ages and, and played in World Cups and Champions Leagues. And they've got, obviously, the new manager, Thomas Tuchel, who... who <laughs> you know, managed in the Champions League plenty of times, got to the final last year. So I, if I was a Chelsea fan, obviously I'd be nervous, but I'd, I I wouldn't be surprised Chelsea see Chelsea getting through. City obviously get through without without batting an eyelid. Um, so not the most exciting week, I guess, in terms of Champions League. But, yeah. Are we, I'm right, I think City certainly the case in the Premier League, but I don't think Tuchel's conceded a goal at home yet, has he? Um, which is certainly a good omen. I can't remember if they've had an FA Cup game in that time. I yeah, I don't. I don't think they. I mean, they've I, no. I'm not sure. I think they've. Con, it's been ten clean sheets in twelve games or something under Tuchel. So pretty, pretty exemplary. So I think going in with a well, any kind of goal lead if they're yet to concede at home is yeah. a good omen. It's fair to say, really. Um, so perhaps that might just quell any kind of. They're certainly not as leaky at the back as they were under under Lampard, that's for certain. Um, now, we do have another, we've not only got a, a week of Champions League in Europa League, we've also got the FA Cup is back with the sixth round um, mm. with a couple of perhaps slightly less glamorous ties. We've got Bournemouth against Southampton. I mean, it gives an opportunity for both of those sides, kind of having slightly underwhelming seasons to give them something to fight for. And there's a couple of other similar ties to that. Sheffield United against Chelsea, maybe an opportunity for Sheffield United to salvage something. Um, mm. But there are a couple of... Um, more appealing ties to neutral, I think. First of all is Everton against Man City. Now, Everton obviously didn't prepare that for that game in the best possible way, losing against Burnley. Um, but the FA Cup's a different animal. We see rotated squads sometimes, and, you know, on a on a, on a one-off occasion, we know that shocks can happen. Uh, I mean, you would certainly back City for that game, but do you give Everton a chance? Uh, I'd love to say I would, but I just... I don't really see City... I mean, Everton, especially at home, they've just been so inconsistent. And they, yeah, I don't think their strength will be against these, you know, the likes of Man City. And yeah, like you, I, I'd i like to sort of, I mean, who knows, maybe they, they sort of live, uh, did Everton do quite well in the in the previous round? I can't remember. I feel like they, yeah, an impressive performance, I can't remember, but yeah, I don't see Man City sort of giving that one up. And yeah, I guess it's a chance for them to sort of keep going with their quadruple uh, hopes, which really do seem like they're in the balance and and could happen. I mean, probably not, but they're all still there, those competitions. I mean, they're getting, they're getting the, I don't want to say they're getting the look of the draw, but things just, you know, things, things do seem to be going in their favour. Like if there was a, if there was ever a time for, for a team to pull off that, what would be an incredible mm. achievement just with every passing week it seems like it's kind of falling more into place than mm. uh, but we'll see on that one we've also got uh, Leicester against Man United uh, second against third in the league is obviously in terms of league position the, the biggest tie this round um, United have fared reasonably well against Leicester in the last few seasons they're kind of the one side that Leicester haven't really been able to crack particularly often uh, but it's uh, it's still a, a, a good game for neutral that's um yeah, definitely. I think I think Manchester United, I mean, big, big week actually for, for you guys because, you know, it's essential you get past AC Milan and I really think you should be aiming to to get to the final of the FA Cup because um, it 
I think it's a, it would be a really important trophy for you guys to win. Um, but like you say, no, no easy task in both the Europa League and the FA Cup. So I think by the end of the week, there will be, uh, well, let's see what happens with United because it could go well or half well or really terribly. So yeah. I agree with that. That's not something I'd actually thought of particularly. We could be sitting here this time next week and United could be out of one or two competitions, uh, which hadn't actually crossed my mind until just then. But that's a certainly uh, <laughs> one for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer to get his head around. Um, yeah. He's there too. So maybe perhaps not the FA Cup for as long as Man City is still in it, but they're certainly favourites to the Europa League. It's trophy they have won before. Um, FA Cup need to draw a level with Arsenal in the uh, all-time winners list. That's something that needs to get put to bed. Um, so Kadu is staying in that one really as well. Um, now, just to think one more one more match that's perhaps slightly worth talking about for the week ahead is obviously Rangers have already wrapped up the SPL, uh, but they do uh, play against Celtic in the old firm next week. Now, one thing I just wanted to, to bring up is that there's been discussion and kind of questioning whether Celtic will give a guard of honour, which is maybe quite a small subjective discussion, but I just maybe wanted to have a little bit of a chat about that with you because I think it just seemed a bit... I don't know. It didn't sit well with me that there's talk of them not doing so. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I haven't sort of heard about that, but surely that's that's just how it goes, does it not? Is that not etiquette and sort of a formality? At well, this I point don't or not? believe it's. I think it's it's kind of accepted as a formality. I don't think it's uh, compulsory. I mean, I seem to remember a few years ago. Um, well, Chelsea won the league and came to Old Trafford, and there was kind of discussion about whether United would, but Fergie was adamant that United would give the guard of honour to Chelsea. Um, mm. You know, I think we've seen kind of Arsenal giving the guard of honour to, or Arsenal giving the guard of honour to United when Van Persie was in the United squad. So yeah. we've kind of seen kind of these big, massive fixtures in English football where we've seen teams giving each other guards of honour and kind of putting sporting rivals to one, rivalries to one side. And it, it didn't really sit well with me that there is kind of discussion that Celtic wouldn't do that. Um, I mean, yeah. there's not a yeah, that is. I think. I mean, obviously, if you're a you're a Celtic fan, then maybe you feel differently. But to the to the neutral, and I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's slightly different in Scottish football in terms of the dynamic and the relationship between the teams. But I think in the in England in the Premier League, there is an acceptance that sort of you do recognise the best team in the league at the end of the season, and if it's a tradition, there's not really. Unless sort of an exceptional circumstance comes up, you sort of just go along with 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 the norm. But I can't say that I know the ins and outs of uh, why Celtic might be questioning that. Maybe they just uh, they they can't bear to to acknowledge that they've missed out on is it what the tenth consecutive uh, Scottish I mean, title and sort of really back on top now. So maybe that's just too painful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't profess to be a, a, an absolute expert either and I know you kind of weren't expecting me to bring that up just then it was just something that I was reading through a few minutes ago um, but it's mm. I think it's a, an interesting topic of conversation kind of from a from a sporting perspective obviously as big rivals as they are um, yeah. I just think from a, from a just from a sporting perspective it would be the right thing to do now on a mm. completely different note um, it's not something we usually talk about or usually have reasons to talk about but there was some very big news today uh, from the world of boxing, that Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury have agreed a deal to do uh, two fights in 2021. The dates and the venue are still to be confirmed. I'm sure we'll find out that out reasonably soon if they're planning to squeeze two fights into this calendar year. Um, but what's your initial reaction to that? I mean, I'm not, I don't usually watch boxing, but I will absolutely be uh, be uh, paying however much I need to pay to watch those two fights. Absolutely. Yeah, like you, I'm not, uh, I don't follow sort of boxing or the boxing calendar unless, you know, uh, one of my friends who do follow boxing sort of say, oh, there's a big fight coming on. I mean, I, I only like watching the, you know, the big fighters, the big hitters, he likes a Fury, Joshua, um, you know, the others as well. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, these, I mean, when Anthony Joshua fights, there is something. I remember watching the Klitschko fight um, way back when. It must have been, what, like four or five years ago now or something? Three years, four years? Time ago now, yeah. Yeah, and that sort of level of excitement, I think, in, in a boxing match when you're even watching and it is unparalleled. I don't get it in, in football games. It, it The tension is sort of, uh, yeah, it's crazy. And to think that it would be 
Anthony Joshua and, and Tyson Fury would just be uh, next level, I think. So, yeah, like you, I'd, I'd, I'd be there. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm hoping perhaps it'd be later in the there'll be crowds just to add that extra, extra dimension because I imagine that would be an absolutely... That would be the sporting event to be out this year, I think, either of those two fights. Um, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm kind of not sure what else to say about that um, other than the fact that it's obviously a huge story from World of Sports Day uh, that I'm sure sports fans around the world probably are, uh, particularly in the UK, with them being two, um, mm. two British fighters will be, you know, salivating at the prospects of. Uh, but that's something it that's is, yeah, this year. But I, I feel like that's been announced and I don't know about you, but I think Anthony Joshua has just become, you know, almost like he is a national treasure and, and a hero in a way. And even though Tyson Fury is also British, he's almost as if he's the uh, the outside party, the the guy who, the underdog in a way, even though he probably isn't. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see Tyson Fury outbox Anthony Joshua, but he, it's almost as if, yeah, uh, he's, um, yeah, he's not in the same sort of category of, of popularity that Joshua is, which will make for an interesting dynamic because it's it's obviously an all British fight, but mm. it doesn't seem like that if you if you know what I mean. Yeah, he does seem quite a, like an anti-establishment figure, just kind of out to just yeah. kind of ruffle a few feathers. Um, I don't think that detracts from his popularity. I think if anything, that probably boosts his popularity. Just kind of such a a rogue individual. Um, yeah, but, um, and I also think with, with boxing. But by the you know, uh, especially on this occasion, even though Joshua's is absolutely the most you know popular, one of the most popular sporting figures in in the country, I think if if Tyson Fury were to outbox him fair and square, you know, it's a sort of sport that you do get a a level of um, respect afterwards, and you sort of acknowledge that the best fighter won, and it seems quite uh, well and above board. So yeah as you say, very, very exciting. So let's see where it is um, and when. Well, that will be uh, one sporting event that we won't be able to reflect on this time next week because it will likely still be some, <laughs> some months off. I think Tyson Fury's even said he stopped training the last few weeks, sinking 12 pints a day. Um, so I very much doubt it will be any time soon. What's that? I saw, a photo I saw a photo of him on the beach recently and and or, or like not on the beach, like abroad, but just, you know, on a going for a cold water swim or something. And he, uh, obviously he's not the sort of stereotypical, uh, perfect uh, body build for a boxer or like Anthony Joshua is, but he was seriously looking slightly out of shape. So um, I'm sure he knows what he's doing and he'll be, he'll be getting back into shape for that fight. But yeah, yeah. I suspect that's probably part of the mind game starting already. We'll see. Um, yeah. As I say, that's not something we'll be able to review next week. We'll have, we will have, a lot of uh, other action, three different football competitions, um, four, if you include yeah. your firm, if we can oh. uh, find something to say about that, potentially. Oh. Uh, so, Europa League, Champions League, FA Cup, Old Firm, Premier. there's also four Premier League games. Premier League, yeah. Um, oh, gosh, that's even more than I thought. God, well, we'll uh, you've got, there's a lot. <laughs> we won't have any room for music in next week's show, but we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I think we'll, uh, We'll wrap up for this week. We've covered a lot of ground there. Um, I know you enjoyed talking about Arsenal, so we spent an awful lot of time on that and then squeezing a lot of other stuff as well. Uh, so thanks for joining me again, Alfie. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.